0: Open your Bible to Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46, and you may be wondering where, where we are going into the future here as far as the sermon series goes. And if you remember, back in September, we Ended 1 Corinthians 15, took an Ephesians break, so I will actually pick up Ephesians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians uh, 16 next week. But this week, the Lord laid this passage on my heart, and for two reasons. One is, it's a passage I've wanted to preach for a while, and one I've been thinking about. And secondly, the ladies' Bible studies tonight, and what I'm going to be speaking on next week is their topic So I didn't want to compete with the pastor's wife, with my wife. No competition, she says. You're right. You're far better than I could ever hope, as every husband should say. This past week, we were reminiscing as we looked at some photos and pictures from about 10, 12 years ago, and we saw some pictures and video of our kids on the beach in South Carolina, and I was remembering those times when I would go out there in the ocean with my kids, and they were, you know, three, four, five years of age, and they would hold on to you, and I would hold on to them, and I would jump in the waves with them, and sometimes, you know, hold them up, and they would laugh, and sometimes hold them down, and they would cry. And... Uh, And I I carried them out into the waves and we had some fun and I carried them safely to shore. And as I watched those videos, I was thinking about this passage and uh, Isaiah chapter 46 verse 4 came to mind. And really the picture of God allowing his people, in this case Judah, to go into captivity, to face suffering. But in verse 4 of Isaiah 46, there's a promise. And it's the promise that God will carry them before they go into captivity. He will carry them as they go into captivity. He will carry them and then he will carry them out. Notice verse four. He says, he promises, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save And like I carried my children through those waves and safely to the shore, God promises to carry his children along, to carry them safely into his abode in glory. So the title of my sermon this morning is Trust God to Carry You. Trust God and his omnipotent arms of grace to hold you. To carry you into eternity. As we look forward to this year, there are many things that we might be fearful of or we could be anxious about. I was reading some articles, uh, some news articles, and read what some people are saying is going to happen in 2024. So here's some quotes of some things I read. One quote from an article Human. Survival is at risk. That's ominous. Another one, the market is in for a mega threatened age. I don't even know what that means, but it, it's, it's bad, whatever it is. One conservative commentator said this, something bad is about to happen, I'd bet my house on it. Some of you are laughing because you know who that is. He has his own Twitter uh, video, so, show. Well, the fear of this future, of the future, and particularly of 2024, is is actually how the world responds to the unknown, to the uncertain. They, are, they get worried. They get concerned. There's this fear wells up in their heart. And what's also interesting about those in the world is that when they are afraid, when they are worried, they turn... To their idols, That's what we see here in Isaiah chapter 46, that the Babylonian people, they trusted in their idols. And when Israel would be taken away or Judah would be taken away into captivity, they would be tempted to trust the idols of Babylon. Isaiah chapter 45 and really chapter 46 go together. They're, they should be really merged together. They flow as one. In fact, look back in Isaiah 45 and notice this. Isaiah 45 and verse 20. In the middle of the verse, God says that those who reject God, this is what they do. Verse 45, verse 20 says that they carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. So so they hold on to that piece of carved wood they talk to it, and hope it can do something for them. And guess what? It can't because it's just a piece of carved wood. And so what he talks about here in this passage of scripture of Isaiah 46, he basically is comparing the gods of Babylon and how they trust in those gods, and you might be tempted to with the sovereign Lord, Yahweh God. In fact, notice in Isaiah 46 in verse 1, You can see God's warning about turning to the idols of Babylon. Verse 1, chapter 46, Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Bel was the fatherly head of the Babylonian pantheon. He's also known as Marduk. Nebo was another Babylonian false god. He was considered to be the son of Bel. So both of these idols were the Dominant primary idols of Babylon. And at this time, Babylon, they were the superpower. They were the one that everyone was scared of. And even Judah in Jerusalem, they were scared that they were going to come and be conquered. And of course, God promised they would be. At the beginning of the new year for the Babylonian people, the priests would take, go to the temple of the idol Nebo, and he would bring him to the idol or to the temple of Bel. And so they'd have this huge worship ceremony at the beginning of their new year. And the god, their idol, the god, Bel, uh, god Nebo, was the god of wisdom. And they, they thought that he could see into the future of that year. And the priests would discern what he was saying. And they would write down on the tablets of destiny. That sounds pretty cool. OK, it sounds like Indiana Jones. The tablets of destiny, what was going to happen that year. But what's interesting is those people, the Babylonian people, trusted those those gold idols, silver idols, whatever they were made out of, that they could help them and actually give them safety that year. They could trust them. And the point is, is that's how the world responds to fear or to desire, a desire for prosperity or for safety or peace. And we look at that and we may say, oh, those foolish people, We don't have idols like that, do we? Oh, yes, we do. See, an idol is not just a a piece of of wood or metal that someone prays to, that thing. An idol is really anything that claims the place of God in my heart, in place of God. It's, It's anything that I turn to in faith instead of turning to God. An idol is anything that's more important to you than God. An idol is anything that you trust rather than trusting in God. An idol can be a thing that you look to for comfort. You're down, you're sad, you're depressed, and you need help. You want to be brought out, so you go to that thing. Someone's job could be an idol. They look for fulfillment. They look for meaning in success of that that business or climbing the corporate ladder. Media can be an idol. You run to that to, to bury yourself in that entertainment. to Hopefully, not think about the problems that are in your life friends, and social media, and drugs, and alcohol, all those things can be idols because you can turn to those things and trust those things to, to carry you through those trials instead of trusting in God. And you see, the, the thing is here, when we read about these idols, it's not just these Babylonians and, and, the, and the people of Judah that were tempted to go to idols. We all have idols. And so the question for us is, is what are your idols that you turn to? Right? When, when life is when the waves of life come over you, what is it that you want to carry you safely to wherever you hope to be? What do you look to for joy and peace? The response to sorrow and trials for those who don't trust God is a turn to idols. It's like a foolish toddler who sees his father right there and his father has strong, loving arms who can hold him and carry him, but the toddler sees the driftwood and throws himself in the driftwood, right? It's it's, it's foolish. It's not going to work. So it is with a person who trusts in their idols. And so, so the title of the sermon here is Trust God to Carry You Three Through and, and Really, I only have two points here. And the first point is to release your hold on your idols. And the second point is to remember your sovereign God. From Isaiah chapter number 46. So first of all, release your hold on your idols that cannot care for your soul. But actually, they rather burden you down. Notice Isaiah chapter 46. We're going to see verses 1 through seven, there's a comparison between idols that promise to carry your burdens. They promise to take away your cares, but actually they burden you more. Compare that to God, who is the burden carrying God, who is the God who sent his son to die on the cross. And on that cross, he bore your sufferings and your sins upon himself. He's the burden-carrying God, and he can care for your soul, and he can carry you by his grace. And I asked you earlier, what are your idols? And it's so important for us to make sure we land right here and we think about that. Like, what is your your answer to that? Because you might be lonely in here. And so to get out of the hole of your loneliness, you, you trust in something to get you out of that. Or maybe you have some, some intense fears in your life. You're, you're afraid your kids might die, or you don't know what's going to happen to the finances for this next year, or, or whatever, or the politics. What's going to happen in politics, right? Who's oh, going to be elected president? And you can be consumed by those things, and therefore you can turn to your idols. And so what are those idols? You might have the idol of control, right? Things are out of control. So you're going to, through anger or maybe gossip or, or maybe another way, you're going to try to get things under control. Because, you know, God doesn't have it under control, so you need to. It's kind of the mindset. Or you turn to the idols of entertainment or food or alcohol. You just want to drain your sorrow away. And can, can I ask that just genuine, genuinely to you? Do you turn to those things for comfort? It's late at night and you're sad and you're like, what can I pop in my mouth to help me feel better instead of turning to the Lord? These are real things we need to think about as we go into this passage and consider that that these people, the Babylonians, but particularly Judah, were were genuinely tempted to consider those idols as those Gods who could satisfy. So let's actually get into our text. Verse 1. Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Wait a second. Let's stop right there and ask. What are they bowing down to? So those gods bow down. Those gods stoop. Who do they stoop to? Well, if you read chapter 45, you realize it's God, Yahweh God, the only true and living God. So notice verse 1. Their idols are on beasts. And livestock. So the idea is their idols are not powerful enough to walk around to get where they need to go. They actually have to be put on the backs of animals or in carts and animals take them through the city to where they need to go. They have no power. They can't even take care of themselves. That's how foolish it is. These things, verse 1, these things, that's idols, you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. The the animals have to take them where they need to go. Verse two, they stoop, that is both the idols, worshipers and the idols, they are humbled, they bow down together. They, that's the idols, cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. And so the people are gonna be taken into captivity, but so will the Babylonian people. And their idols won't save them. That's what he's saying. The idol worshipers trust in the idols to save them, but they're both doomed. The idol worshipers and the idols are doomed because they trusted in those false gods. And here we see the futility of trusting anything other than God. Notice verse 2 declares, they, that's the idols, they cannot save you. And why is that? Because there's only one who can truly deliver, and that is our God. And that's why we must look and trust in him alone. And let me remind you, friend, when you run to that idol, and could you put that in your mind? What, the, what, the, what is that thing that you turn to or that person or whatever it is instead of trusting God? When you run to that, you might have a momentary time of euphoria. Maybe your body feels a certain way, or maybe just you talk to that person so you feel a certain way. You, you, you dump all your problems on your spouse, like they're your idol. You're going you're gonna to go to them, and it's going to help you, and you might have euphoria for a moment, but, but then you're left empty, aren't you? In other words, it, it can't really help you. That, that burden that you're putting on them, that, they can't save you. And so look at verse 3. He's, God says, okay, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been, and notice what God does, been born, or you could say he carried by me. That's Yahweh God. From before your birth, carried from the womb. So this is the picture of God who who carries you from conception in the womb, out of the womb, and throughout your life, even into your old age. That's what he says there, Lotus verse. Number four, even to your old age, I am he, to the gray hairs, and notice this promise, I will carry you, I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. So so you see the contrast here. God is saying, I'm the God who gave you life, I'm the God who provides for you, I'm the God who carries you through, through this life, even as you go through the the fire and through the waves and through the troubles, I will carry you through it to the very end. And so he's saying you have two options. You can either trust those idols who actually, ironically, you, carry, you throw your burdens upon them and then you have increased burdens. They, they only, not only do they not help you out, but they actually cause your burdens to be greater. And you, you recognize that, right? When, when you go to those idols... You think, I'm, I'm casting my cares upon these idols, and they're going to care for me. And then you actually realize the burden's greater. I think about two people. In First Samuel, there's Hannah. Hannah is afflicted, isn't she? She is struggling with the trial of infertility. And she has another woman in her life who just mocks her all the time. It's never It like, never stops. What does Hannah do in response to all that? Well, she keeps going back to the Lord, keeps going and goes to the house of the Lord and prays to the Lord. And you know what's interesting is you can see the faith of Hannah, who she believed God to be after God answered her prayer and gave her a child. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, you can see her faith. And what was her faith in? Her faith was in that God was her rock. This is what she says. The Lord is my is the Holy One my rock? So she's like, I'm, I got a lot of problems in my life, and I got a lot of concerns, but I have put my feet upon who he is. And then this is something interesting that Hannah says as well, 1 Samuel 2, 6. The Lord kills, and the Lord brings to life. It's kind of like Job. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Here she's saying, God's sovereign. God's in charge, and I, I pray to you, Lord, I know you have the power to do whatever you want to do, and I cast my cares upon you. So here's Hannah. She trusts in the living God, but there was another person in that house of God, and his name is Eli, and do you know that Eli worshipped idols? You say, well, I don't remember in the Bible anywhere where it says there were carved images that he worshipped. Oh, he didn't worship carved images that we know of. He worshipped his sons. His sons were his idols. He wanted to be accepted by them. He put his hopes in them. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 2, 29, God said to him, actually, you honor your sons above me. Or you could say it like this. Your sons are like idols in place of me. Eli put his sons before God, put all his hopes and his dreams in his sons, and his sons cost him a lot. Not because, necessarily, because just didn't want what's best for them. It's because he put his faith in them and he trusted in them instead of God. And it ended up costing Eli the life of his sons. They went the path of hell, but also cost Eli his life. You see, your idols, they cost a lot. For Hannah, she trusted in the Lord God carried her through, even into motherhood. What a blessed thing that was for her. But notice how much your, your idols cost. Look, notice verse 5. To whom will you liken me, this is God speaking, and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike. So compare. God to idols? What? Verse 6. Those who lavish gold from the purse cost them money, weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. How foolish is that? And so, so notice how much your idols cost. And really, the world perceives them as very valuable, but in eternity, they have no value, right? It's just a piece of gold, a metal, silver, And notice verse number seven, they, those who trust in idols, lift it on their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. In other words, you put your faith in that idol and it can't do anything for your soul. You cast your burden upon the idol and it can't satisfy. A few weeks ago, it was reported that there was a famous actor named Matthew Perry that passed away at age 54. He was a millionaire. He was on a show that was very popular called Friends. Throughout his life, Perry was empty, constantly depressed, burdened by guilt and shame, and he was spiritually dead It's a sad story. Perry, Matthew Perry, had many idols in his life that he turned to instead of turning to the living God. At the age of 14, he took his first alcoholic drink, and from that drink, he went on to continue to drink the rest of his life, and probably at the end, it contributed to his death. After that first bottle of wine, He thought he had found the God that could wash away his cares. A friend quoted as saying this. He found a calm that he had never felt before in which the scary thoughts that plagued him dissipated. Isn't that what people hope when they go to the bottle and they hope to wash it away? But guess what? It didn't wash it away. It was always there. When he woke up the next morning, those thoughts came back. He started to pop pills George Clooney said he knew him at age 16. This is what George Clooney said about Matthew Perry. He said, Matthew Perry said this once to him. Quote, I just want to get on a regular sitcom. This is before he was on Friends. And I would be the happiest man on earth. So can we recognize the idol that's there? He wanted fame and fortune, success, and then it would give him happiness. This is what Clooney said about that. He got on one of the best ever, one of the best sitcoms ever. I'm still quoting. But he wasn't happy. It didn't bring him joy or happiness or peace. That's from George Clooney, an unbeliever. And you know what? He's exactly right. Perry went to the idols of fame and acceptance and alcohol, substances, and those things didn't satisfy. They made a lot of promises, and they never fulfilled those promises because idols can't fulfill their promises. They were such a burden upon him. He spent $9 million to try to get free of the burden of those idols. He went to 6,000 alcoholic anonymouses meetings alcoholic anonymous meetings and still he was gripped by that sin here's a quote i read an article that a friend said about him he lied to everyone about his about being clean he never was clean it's very sad you know the biggest lie he told was probably to himself and isn't that church i mean this person's not a believer either that i know of How true is that? See, when you go to that idol, the biggest lie that you're believing is the lie you tell to yourself that yes, it will satisfy this time. Yes, this will be the time that it will take away whatever whatever I need taken away or give me whatever I want. And so you must ask the question, all of us must ask the question, am I being deceived? There's only one, who can truly satisfy? There's only one who can give eternal peace and joy, and that is our Lord. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 1 20, 20, all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's in Christ. Do you know who does fulfill promises? Do you know who does give you satisfaction? It's Jesus Christ. In fact, that's why Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm not just, I'm not the bread of your stomach, right? I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I can truly satisfy the hunger of your soul. That's what Jesus was saying. Scripture says in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy at your right hand, are." pleasures forevermore eternal holy righteous wonderful pleasures come from God. See, that's what you're seeking when you go to those idols. Only one can give it to you. That's God through Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. And what's interesting about the fruit of the Spirit, that which comes only from the Holy Spirit in the heart of a believer is that it's truly what people want but can only come God. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and everybody is seeking those things and God says there's only one who provides it. It's the Holy Spirit provided through Christ by God the Father. And so what should we do? What should we do Instead of holding on to those idols and going to those idols, the scripture says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Cast your burden on the Lord, he will sustain you. See, that's the one we're to go to. And so our next point is this. Remember your sovereign God who carries all things and cares for your soul. Remember your sovereign God who carries all things and cares for your soul. Notice down in verse number eight really eight through 13, call us to remember who God is. Verse eight, remember this, stand firm, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Now let's stop right there and ask a question. Why did he call his people transgressors? You see, because when we turn to something other than God, when we trust something other than God or someone other than God, actually it's transgressing. It's sinning against God. And so what he's saying here is this, the first step, That you need to take, if you've been going to something other than God, then you need to confess your sin. It's a step of repentance. It's saying, God, I have not been trusting you. I've been trusting myself. I've been trusting these idols in my life. So I confess I'm a transgressor. That's the first step he's saying right here. And then notice verse number nine. Remember, remember what? Well, remember who God is. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. So after you confess your sins of being an idol worshiper, he says, put your mind somewhere. Remember something. Meditate on something. And what is that? who God is and what God has done. Can I just tell you, if you're going through some deep suffering and sorrows and difficulties... Even if you're not, all of us throughout our day should put our mind upon who God is. That's what it's saying to do here. In fact, notice in verse number three, go up to verse number three. Just notice what he keeps doing this, coming back to remembering, listening to God's word. Verse three, listen to me. That is, listen to my word, God is saying. Verse number eight, remember this. Recall to mind, meditate on this in your mind. Verse number nine, Remember the former things. Verse number 12, listen to me. He's saying, listen to my word. Think about who I am. Meditate upon who I am and what I promise. And you know, this is where we should go when we have these difficulties, when almost whenever I visit someone in the hospital, I at some point pray or read Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4. And, and can I tell you, if you're going through something right now that you're burdened by, will you memorize these two verses right here? Because this is what God wants you to do. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed, whose mind mediti- meditates, whose mind rests on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord Yahweh, Yahweh forever, for in the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Put our mind upon the Lord, upon who he is. And so verse number 10, therefore, declares who God is. Who is he? He is the sovereign Lord of all. All creation, all history, all kingdoms, all animals, all people, all nations, everything. He is the sovereign Absolute sovereign of all, verse number 10 declares that. Declaring, this is God declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, the things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. So verse 10 is declaring the doctrine that we many times call the sovereignty of God, This is the truth of God's character that declares that he alone possesses all power. He is in charge of all things. God's sovereignty means he works and governs according to his eternal purposes. And even through events that seem to contradict or oppose his rule. Let me say that one more time. God's sovereignty means he works and he governs according to his own eternal purposes, even through events that seem to contradict or oppose his rule. And I say it seems to. See, God's sovereignty means that he rules over everything. He, he is omniscient, which means he knows everything. So he has the knowledge to do and to, and to have understanding and wisdom to do what he needs to do. He's omnipotent. That means he has infinite power. He can do whatever he wants to do. He's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere at once so he can do what he purposes to do. God's sovereign rule over all things is the sure foundation for every believer and some people sometimes come to this doctrine of the, of the sovereignty of God and they kind of trip over it and they stumble over it because they think to themselves, I don't understand, how, how does this work with, with our responsibility? Some people even think about it like this. Well, I don't think God, God only allows things to happen or some things to happen. God's not truly over everything. And this text is actually saying that that's not true. Because verse 10 is saying he, God is declaring the end from the beginning. It's like the very end to the very beginning, God's the one who mapped it out. God does not only know what will happen, and he does, he knows what will happen, but he has already determined that what will happen will happen. And so we gotta be clear here about something, and that is that God is not the author of evil. He has never done evil, He can never do evil. He will never tempt anyone to do evil. And so think about this for a moment. Evil is a moral decision of a creature to reject or resist God. So evil is a moral decision of a creature to reject or resist God. So a creature that responds to God in resisting or rejecting him, that's that creature's responsibility. His response to God is his responsibility. A creature's response to God is a creature's responsibility. It's not God's fault that he chooses to reject God, that he chooses evil to do evil. God is completely holy and good and righteous, and he rules according to his holy, righteous character. And as the ruler of the universe Sometimes, now this is going to be a hard one for some of you to, to think about. So just, just hold with me and think about this. Sometimes God causes calamity to fulfill his good and holy purposes. And you say, oh, prove it to me, Pastor Ben. Go back to Isaiah 45, verse 7. Isaiah 45, 7. God does not do evil, but sometimes God does actually Purpose, calamity, which is not equal, which is not evil. See, God can do what he wants to do within his holy nature. It's his prerogative if there's pain that comes to our life or to a creature's life. Notice Isaiah 45, 7. God says this, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So in case you missed it, it's God saying, I do these things, not evil. So let's get that very clear, not evil, but God's purpose sometimes does include affliction and disaster and suffering. And he has reasons he does that. There's probably a million reasons God does what he does. And we probably only know a few, but we know some of them are. Sometimes God puts affliction in our life because he loves us enough to make us more like Christ. I mean, think about Job. Job, Job, the man who suffered, and this is how he responded after he lost pretty much everything that a worldly person could think is valuable in this world. He said this, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why would God take that away from him? Well, read the book. It's a long book. Don't listen to the bad friends. Listen to the one good friend. Listen to the Lord, most importantly, at the end. But here's a clue. Job 23.10, Job said this. He knows, God knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, after this suffering, after this affliction, I shall come forth as gold. God is making me more and more holy like he is. And so that's a good thing. That's the best thing, actually. Sometimes God allows affliction in our life because we're going the wrong direction. we We need to be pointed back to him. So he disciplines us. And actually, that's God's love. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. And that's what's going on with Judah here. They're about to be disciplined by being taken away captive into Judah or into Babylon. And God's doing that because he loves them. But he's saying, I'm going to bring you back. Like, I'm going to carry you there, and I'm going to carry you back. God's loving hand never leaves them. God often has hidden purposes, too. Like I said, we don't really understand sometimes what's happening. But we do know this, that God will do all things for his glory and for the good of his people. He will do all things for his glory and for the good of his people. And so you think about someone like Joseph. He can take, God can take Brothers who have envy and hate and even want to murder him, and eventually they sell him into slavery. He he can take that evil, God can purpose it for good. In fact, what's interesting is when finally, years later, when they see Joseph, the brothers in Egypt, and they talk to him, and Joseph responds back to his brothers who sinned against him. This is what he says, Genesis 45, 7. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. Wait a second. No, 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 no. That's not how it worked, is it? Because like, didn't the brothers send him down there? The brothers sold him into slavery? Like that? How did that happen? Like obviously the brothers did. Well, yes, it did happen. Obviously they they sinned against him. But what Joseph is coming back to and saying, actually, I believe so much in the sovereignty of God. I believe actually that he's the one who sent me down to Egypt as a slave. And, And to keep alive for you many survivors and just in case you missed it verse 8 so it was not you who sent me but god and this is this is joseph saying i mean how is it that we see joseph is not sinning at least in the scripture, we don't see that that's in his heart. How does it, for those many years, he's sitting in a prison, <laughs> he's been wrongfully accused, and yet he continues to trust God because he believes this right here. God is the one who puts me where he puts me. God is the one who's in charge, and I completely trust him, even though for years Joseph didn't know why God was doing what he was doing. But he, but he believed this, God, you're good, and you will do good, and you are doing good, and you're going to do all for your glory. And that's why even after his father died in Genesis chapter 50, the brothers come and they're thinking, oh, certainly he's going to get revenge on us. Joseph's going to come after us. And Joseph again assured them, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring out, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And here's the amazing irony of the whole thing that God actually used Joseph going down to Egypt to save the brothers that sinned against him. Isn't that amazing? That's how wonderful and good God's sovereignty is, that even those who sin against God and against Joseph are rescued. God's so kind and gracious and merciful, and that's what you see here. And so he says in verse number 10, this is who God is. God says, verse, verse 10, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish my purpose. I have my purpose. I'm fulfilling my purpose. I will continue to. I'm God. I'm in charge. It's going to happen how I want it to happen. That's what he's saying. And so the question for us is, are you going to be a part of it? You see, because God invites us into these plans in a way that honestly it's hard for us to fathom. But God says you have a response that you are responsible for. And that's a response of faith. You must trust God. You must trust him. In fact, one of the, my favorite passages with this is I, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, which speaks about God's purpose before creation, before there was even a molecule spoken to existence, God purposed to create a world and to send the Son to be the Savior of the world. That's that's crazy to think about. Like that was before there was even a creation, God purposed to have his son be the redeemer. And so Ephesians 3.11 says this, that is that God's purpose before time to send Christ, was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that means that we just kind of sit back and do nothing. Is that what that means? God's eternal sovereignty His purposes means I'm just kind of like, whatever, I'm not a part of this. No, because verse 12 says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Knowing God's sovereign plan was determined before time actually fuels our prayer life. And, and again, we're not going to be able to comprehend all, how it all goes together, but I know this, that the God I'm praying to, the God who's sovereign over all, he is the one not only can do whatever he wants to do, he will do it. And he says if I pray to him and I talk to him and I ask him things, he'll answer me. He'll actually answer my requests. How does that happen? I don't understand it. See, here's the problem. People say, well, how how do you put these two together? How do you put God's absolute sovereignty and our decisions, our responsibility, how do you put those two together? And and the answer to that is, in our minds, we can't put it together. They're, They're two realities. They're two truths that are not opposing each other. They're actually, they perfectly work together in the mind of God. But in our minds, we don't know how they work together. It's impossible for us to harmonize those two truths in our human minds. It's impossible for us to figure out how they work together in God's mind, but they do, and we believe it by faith. And I really like how Joel Beakey, a pastor, explains this. He says, Just as the rails of a train track run parallel to each other and appear to merge in the distance, So the doctrines of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, which seem separate from each other in this life, will merge together in eternity. Our task is not to force their merging in this life, but to keep them in balance and to live accordingly. In other words, trust that both are true, even if you don't completely understand it. And so verse number 11, look at verse 11, because now he says, come back to this and believe me. Verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. God again says, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, and I will do it. So notice all those I wills. This is God saying, I will accomplish what I'm going to accomplish. And you may ask, Pastor Ben, how do we know this? I mean, God can say this all he wants, but can he prove it? You know what? He can. Because look at verse 11. Who is that bird of prey from the east? That's a a personification of a person. Who is the man of my counsel from a far country? Who is that? You know who it is? It's King Cyrus. Yeah, King Cyrus. Look over in chapter 45, verse 1. Because remember I said Isaiah 45 and 46 actually go together. So the beginning of this talk that God gives is in Isaiah 45, and there's a man in there named King Cyrus. King Cyrus was the king who ruled over Persia starting in 539 BC. He was a real historical figure, and God prophesied that he would come and he would deliver his people from King Nebuchadnezzar, from the Babylonians. Do you know that that was 150 years in the future from the writing of this document? In other words, King Cyrus is not alive when Isaiah is writing this down. There's no nobody knows a King Cyrus. In fact, the Persian Empire, they're not even existing. It's it's the Babylonian Empire. So so the timeline is this: here's Judah in Jerusalem. The Babylonians have not conquered them yet, but God's saying, You're gonna get conquered. There's gonna be 70 years that go by, and then there's gonna be a time when there's gonna be a king that's gonna come and he's gonna deliver you. He's the king of Persia. And actually what's going to happen is he's going to send you back to the land of Israel. And here's the, here's the amazing thing. He's going to send you back to the land of Israel. He's going to help rebuild the temple. He's going to actually help reestablish the, the, the Judaism. And he's going to pave the way for the Messiah to come in 500 years. And there's gonna be a day in Bethlehem where once again, it will be full of Jewish people and there will be a, a woman named Mary who's a virgin and she'll have a Joseph with her and she'll have a baby named Jesus and wise men from Persia who are under King Cyrus will travel all the way there and worship this king. And this king will live a perfect life. He will die on the cross. He will be raised in glory. He is the son of God, the Messiah, the savior. And that's what he says. Look at Isaiah 45 1. Therefore, thus says the Lord to his anointed, this is the chosen one he has, the king, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loosen the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be loosed. So, who's that bird of prey from the east? Cyrus, who's that man from a far country? In other words, God's saying, I'm sovereign. I'll take an unbelieving king and I will use him to deliver you. Trust me. And you know what? They didn't, when they read this, they had to just believe that the prophecy was true. We're on this side of it. And we go, wow, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and the Lord directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. What a wonderful truth that is. So go back to Isaiah 46. Notice verse 12 and 13. God pleads with his people. Now, now believe me. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. For you who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It's not a far off. In other words, my gift of righteousness is here, and my salvation will not delay. I will put it in, I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. And his last call is here. He's saying, listen, trust me. Believe me. This is the gospel here. He's saying, believe me. Believe what I say. Turn to me. Remember, I'm the sovereign Lord who carries all things and can care for your soul. And so let me ask at the very end of this a couple of questions to conclude. Do you trust that because God is sovereign, he is in control of all of the affairs of this world. Think about all the things happening around the world. Do you truly believe that he is the one who is sovereign over it all? Do you trust that because God is sovereign, he's causing all things to work out exactly as they should for your greatest good and his greatest glory? Do you trust that because God is sovereign, every promise of his word will come to pass? Every promise will be fulfilled. Do you trust that because God is sovereign, your salvation, the salvation of your soul, is securely held in his hand and nothing can take that away? Do you trust that because God is sovereign, he will bring about good in the face of evil and injustice and suffering. Do you trust that because God is sovereign, he is using the events of your life to make you like Jesus Christ? Do you trust that? That those pains, problems, God actually is using those for a purpose And that is to conform you to the image of his son. Do you trust that because God is sovereign, he has given you a past? Think about that. He has given you a past so he can use it to bless his church and to shine the light of Christ into the future. Do you believe that? Do you believe, do you trust that God is sovereign, which means that you Make decisions according to his word, led by the Holy Spirit, and you're confident he'll provide, he'll take care of you, and he will shepherd your soul someday to glory. Do you truly believe that God is the one in charge? Let's pray. As we bow our heads and humble our hearts before the Lord, music team is coming up and they're gonna play in a moment